0: This is the Cato Daily Podcast for Monday, October 29th, 2018. I'm Caleb Brown. What kinds of regressive regulation keep the poor from climbing the economic ladder to secure the necessities of life? At a live Cato Daily Podcast recording at Cato Club 200, I spoke with Vanessa Brown Calder and Ryan Bourne of Cato and Diane Katz of the Heritage Foundation. Brian Bourne, you wrote a, a paper recently that sort of inverts this idea about when we think about what is welfare, what does that mean? And trying to maximize welfare for uh, lower income people, we're almost always told that the focus needs to be on increasing incomes so that people can can access the, the, the good parts of life. That is, you know, basic necessities to live. And you sort of inverted that. You talk about what are the regulations that disproportionately harm low-income people? Uh, What are the policies that we have that disproportionately harm low-income people? So at even very low levels of income, people can have access to these things. And at the same time, we're increasing freedom and we're not harming the public treasury at the same time, so just very broadly, if you would, walk us through some of the some of the evidence that you 've found regar- regarding this
1: regressive regulation. Well, the whole purpose of this panel is to talk about regressive regulation, and what we mean by that are regulations where the costs are borne disproportionately by poorer households and i I tend to define that as households in the bottom twenty percent of the income distribution. We could define it in other ways um, i 'd noticed that over the past year or so there'd been a plethora of new ideas about how to help the poor, stuff like job guarantees, basic income, Um, Bernie's talking about taxing companies more to try and get companies to uh, increase their pay rates. And all of this consensus seems to focus on the idea that the way to help poor people is to boost their incomes, either directly through transfers or raising the minimum wage, or indirectly by the government providing or subsidising some goods and services so people have more uh, uh, money left over. So what my paper tried to do was to say, okay, we all share the objective that we believe that people who work full-time should have the resources to command a decent standard of living and afford the necessities that, that constitute that. But actually, if you look at the policies by federal, state and local governments, there are a range of things that we currently do, which raise the cost of basic goods and services. So we've got housing with uh, land use planning and zoning laws, it raises the cost of housing and makes it more difficult for poorer people to move to job opportunities. We've got childcare regulations, which uh, is like staff to child ratios, which raise the cost of childcare and also make it more difficult for poor people to move back into work. Um, and on the margin, we know that, that uh, certain families, therefore, as a result, stay out of the labour market. And once you go through all of these different areas, you could look at food and the role of certain protectionism and milk marketing, sugar programs. You can look at uh, clothing and footwear, where we impose incredibly regressive tariffs. I totted up just nine different policies across these basic areas, and found that if you undertook a deregulatory regime in those areas, you could increase the, uh, well, you could reduce prices to such an extent that poorer households would have anywhere between $830 and $3,500 worth of savings for typical families. So I'm trying to reverse this debate about poverty on its head and say before we introduce any new programs, or raise the minimum wage, which is incredibly risky to job opportunities. Let's look at undoing some of the things we currently do, which raise the cost of living for, for poor families. To you, uh,
0: Diane, you come, you visiting us from the Heritage Foundation. Welcome. Yeah. Uh, so, when we think about specifically federal regulation, you know, when we think about environmental regulation, you you have some uh, examples to point to. But you know, generally, we say, well, we all need an environment to live in. Uh, It's just that the means of getting at trying to protect the environment uh, are, are in many cases, very regressive.
2: Environmental regulation is very regressive. All regulation is regressive. Um, And the the dynamic is, is, you know, principally the same, and I'm sure you're all familiar with it, which is if you increase the cost of production, um, the price of goods go up. And if you make it harder for lower-income people to by their basic necessities, as you said, housing, transportation, you know, energy, food, um, it's going to hurt them more because a larger percentage of their, a larger proportion of their salary um, goes to those basic necessities. I do have some examples. So there's tons, every regulation is an example, could be an example. Um, So let's say, let's take the the current favorite, these energy efficiency standards, which are supposed to, um, you know, for for stalled climate change, which they don't, and they won't, and they never will. But in any event, um, you know, the price of energy is increased because we have to produce a certain amount of so-called renewables. And um, there's some 60 different appliances that have DOE Efficiency standards. And the idea is, well, there, the, yes, we know the upfront costs are going to be more, but in the long run, you know, everybody will earn back what the upfront cost was, except that that calculation by the government is based on a family income of $160,000. Which takes into account how often the appliance is used, how long they have it for, and and you know and the like.
0: So, are we, are we talking about like Energy Star or or something? No, sort of the Energy Star is
2: Energy Star is um, voluntary. These are you know the things that make your dryer not dry and the things that make your dishwasher not clean your dishes, and you know sixty of those across across the entire economy, all of which benefits the rich white people who think that they're helping, you know, global warming and all the rest of us um, because they're making appliances more expensive for poor people.
0: Do we do we have an idea? And this is I mean, it's, it's a kind of amazing to me, a little bit galling that the Department of Energy is basing their savings uh, on uh, these appliances, the long term benefits of new appliances. It, it's, a, it's kind of amazing to me that they're basing this on a family income that's 160, which 60,000 dollars a year, which is almost four times what the median household income right. is. So, is there some sort of rationale that DOE uses to say, "Yeah, this is a good uh, double-income, no kids household in the Washington D.C. metropolitan area"? I mean, what is that? Yeah. What are they basing that so on? So, the
2: rationale is, I think, well, Congress lets us do it. So, and I say that because it's you know, it's fine that if we look at specific regulations. And for different segments of industry and different sectors of the economy, individual regulations matter, right? But the real problem here is not individual regulations. The real problem here is the, I don't even know what the adjective is for the vast expansion of regulatory power um, over the entire economy and what that has done to separation of powers, what is done to due process, what it has done to individual liberty. That's the real problem.
0: You know, uh, so uh, as I mentioned, at every possible opportunity, I live in Kentucky. And, um, you know, in Louisville, we have a a transit system. And I figure, well, as long as you're going to have a welfare program, transit that allows people to get to and from work is pretty useful. Uh, So what do we know about for people who own vehicles, right. uh, the, the federal response with respect to uh, standards for fuel efficiency and that sort of thing, what what is the unique impact on low-income people there?
2: Yeah, so um, as many of you know, we've had fuel efficiency standards for um, quite a while now. And uh, automakers initially um, responded to tighter fuel efficiency standards by making vehicles lighter. Uh, what we then learned from doing that was that more people got killed because there was less protection in the vehicle. Um, now what's happening is that by making vehicles more expensive, which depend, you know, how much more expensive depends on the model and all those sorts of things. So there's a big variation. In any event, um, if you make vehicles more expensive, obviously it's, you're less likely to sell as many new vehicles. So that increases the demand on the uh used car market. And lower income families, you know, lower income households, are more likely to, to um buy a used car when they change vehicles than a brand new car. So they're getting priced out of the used car market at this point. So that what that means is that they're staying in their old, more polluting cars, um, which are likely to t- more likely to break down or to be unsafe so that they can't get to work. And it's, you know, it's one of these cycles that you can see f- from a mile away, right? And for all the regulatory impact analyses and cost-benefit analyses that the government is, is supposed to be doing, and they do, they do these analyses, you know, a lot of times they don't make much sense, but they do them. Um, but, but it's very simple. It's very basic. It's basic economics as to what the, what the, uh, what the impacts are going to be.
0: Uh, Vanessa Calder, when uh, you and I have talked many times on the Cato Daily podcast about zoning and issues related to that, you've uh, met with uh, uh, the HUD secretary uh, uh, to talk about the federal issues with zoning. And you know, when when you mentioned this to me initially, my hackles went up a little bit, and it's like, oh, the feds are going to get involved in zoning. But what is what is the uh, federal response right now with respect to zoning, or what are they? What is HUD considering doing with respect to zoning?
3: So um, HUD um, recently, there's a Affirmatively Furthering Fair Housing rule, which the which Obama actually the Obama administration at HUD. Put into effect during the latter part of the Obama era. And that particular rule was very controversial because it basically said that we're going to desegregate neighborhoods and HUD is going to be in charge of that. And so people bristled at the idea that HUD would somehow have some federal prerogative to go in and look at sort of the makeup of various neighborhoods within a city and try to integrate um, sort of on a socioeconomic on socioeconomic levels and racially try to integrate neighborhoods. And they were bothered by that. So. What Carson is doing right now is actually re-looking at that rule. And it's unclear exactly how it's going to shake out, but what he's thinking of doing is actually using that rule, which is in place, to tie federal grant money, which is housing affordability or housing subsidy money, to um, requirements to liberalize zoning regulations locally. Now, that is something which I think probably may concern people a little bit because is it the federal government getting into zoning and zoning and local (laughs) regulations? And um, I think the first best case is that actually we don't have any housing subsidies going out at the federal level, period, end of story. In the second best world that we're in, we do have these big federal block grants that are going out to local municipalities, and they are intended to actually improve housing at the local level. But the problem is that local regulations are getting in the way of that. Um, And these local regulations are anti-market, and obviously they erode property rights in a way that libertarians would care about. So I think it probably makes some sense and is probably some type of progress on the margin to actually tie housing subsidy allocation to liberalizing zoning regulations, but it is sort of a little bit sensitive. I think another thing that he's doing, which is something we can all agree on as a good thing, is he is going out and actually educating people on zoning reform and the idea that local policymakers have created this big problem, which now we're all looking to the federal government to try to bail us out of, but that's just impossible. I mean, the the amount of zoning regulations that have come online just in the last 30 years or so, um, just the number has, has doubled during that time period. And just on an annual basis, the number that are coming online has doubled. And so uh, this is really something that has to be sorted out locally.
0: Well, it's interesting because uh, you have... Uh, local governments, uh, ov- overwhelmingly local governments, setting rules for zoning, and uh, because they're uh, raising the price of housing, that raises costs for low-income people. And then these same local governments and state governments go to Washington D.C. and say, "Well, you know, we need some housing subsidies for these low-income people," and that seems completely. Uh, backwards.
3: That's exactly what's happening. It's okay. just basically a big federal band aid.
0: So policy. At, at the local level and at the state level, and we can talk about unlibertarian solutions to the problems of local zoning. But uh, at the local level, uh, where are we seeing some of the worst, most restrictive zoning, and what has that done to to housing costs? Like contrasting, say, like Portland, Oregon, or San Francisco with a with a city like Houston.
3: Yeah. So um, there are estimates that on in certain coastal cities, the cost of housing is inflated by about 30 to 50 percent as a result of restrictive zoning regulation. That's a Ed Glazer estimate. Um, and he's an urban economist and knows sort of regulation very well. So it seems that it's somewhere in that neighborhood. I saw an estimate the other day that when it comes to multifamily housing, obviously we're talking about regressive regulation here and regulation that particularly impacts the poor, that just across the nation, the cost of regulation is about 30 percent of the cost of building multifamily housing. So if you could think about that and just think about reducing basically the poorest costs of how, cost of housing by 30 percent, that would be a huge improvement.
2: And how
0: does that change uh, low income people's employment options? Because, you know, in in a lot of cases, low income people, one, their time is spent doing a lot of things that wealthier people pay other people to do. Uh, so uh, commuting is, uh, you know, in a, a massive expense in time. It is regressive in the sense that low low income people using time to commute is time that they're not able to spend doing the things that wealthier people pay other people to do. So, uh, what? How does that change the employment situation for low income people when they have to live very far out, or buy much much less house, or rent a much much smaller space? than they would otherwise uh, be able to do.
3: Well, so what we're finding is that actually low-income individuals are just not going to the employment options, which would otherwise be best for them if it wasn't for these really high housing costs. So there's these high productivity areas on the coast, but basically low-income individuals can't afford to live there once they consider housing costs, even though maybe in New York, being a janitor in New York, you can get paid quite a bit more than you could get paid in Alabama to be a janitor. But because the housing costs are so much higher, in New York, it just doesn't make sense to relocate there. And so geographic mobility rates are way down right now um, at their lowest level. And that's related to this same issue, just too much regulation, driving the cost of housing up, reducing supply, and people are not able to kind of go to their highest and best use location as a result of that.
0: Now, if you talk to Yimbys, and feel free to to, to join in on this, Yimbys—the people who say yes in my backyard, which is the opposite of a NIMBY, not in my backyard—they, uh, so many of them, say, you know what? If we moved zoning from. The this county level or the city level up to the state level, it would be dramatically more efficient. There's no question that it reduces uh, the the liberty of of people who live in a local area, raises the cost of exit from this from the the new regulatory regime. Uh, what do you think of that idea of elevating the level at which uh, uh, zoning is actually is regulated?
3: I am I hugely agree with this idea. I think that um, at the state level, we should be protecting property rights. That is a good role for the state. And basically, zoning erodes property rights, as we know. It makes it so that you're not able to use your property in the way that you want to. Just as an example, since we're talking about low-income individuals, I was just scanning through the news the last couple of weeks, and there's been a variety of stories Um of individuals that have home-based businesses that are not allowed, that are prohibited as a result of zoning. So like in Dallas, this is actually sort of an Institute for Justice case that they're looking at. Uh, There's a Kenyan immigrant there in Dallas who's had a machine shop, an auto shop, on the main drag in Dallas for 30 years. And Dallas has decided that the character of that area, the character of that part of the city, is not consistent with his having an auto shop there. So they're even actually, though it's been
0: there for 30 years, it, it is been there definitely for a part of, the, part of the neighborhood.
3: Right, and so they have decided that they are going to zone that out and they are going to remove him. Um, and that's not the only example of that. There's so many examples. If I, I saw a story in Michigan recently where. Um, there's a family farm there. It's been in the family for 100 years. And after the Great Recession, I mean, it's hard to make a living on a family farm these days. Um, And so this family was trying to find a way to bring a little more income in after the Great Recession. And what they decided on after having many requests to use their barn as a wedding venue is actually to try to rent out their barn as a wedding venue on a more regular basis. And they've spent about $200,000 now fighting with the city over their ability to do that, um, so obviously this is an, also an issue where zoning regulations, restrictive regulations, really impact economic
2: growth and productivity.
0: Diane, as well. you want to add something to that?
2: Yeah, just to be argumentative, you know, I'm not sure that that, that state zoning regulators are going to be all that much better than local zoning regulators. I mean, in a sense, the zone, the locals are closer to the action, so to speak. Um, so I'm just raising the question of why we need these zoning regulations at all, given that they are an infringement on a property right, you know, across the board, in any form.
1: Ryan, oh, I'm sorry. Yeah, I think, were we to have um, governments at a state level that were determined to liberalize, I could see how that efficiency could be driven through, but i just caution against uh, that removal of, that change in responsibility as being um, a kind of killer way of of overturning this. Higher housing costs seem to be a particular affliction of much of the English-speaking world. Um, and where I'm from in the UK, we have an incredibly centralised, nationalised planning system. And it's even worse in terms of the outcomes than here, so I would just caution against... um the idea that moving this upper level will solve all of the problems. And I don't Sorry, think Vanessa that. I can that, respond
3: because I think I've scared everyone on the panel now. <laughs> um, so I actually am not interested in having a state agency regulate all of the land in the state in every city or something like that. That's not what I meant at all. I was thinking more along the lines of at the state level, you could have... Requirements that if cities do try to zone, then they would have to actually compensate um, individual property owners for those property takings, and so I think something like that probably makes sense and something that Roger Pilon I think has advocated for some time. Um, I think that there's also other ways where the state can claw back. They almost every state has a state zoning enabling act, which is basically where they give the cities a blank check to just regulate land use in any way that they want to, and so when I'm thinking. Of getting Getting the state involved, I'm thinking of actually taking back that power from the state, from the from the local government, to tell you exactly what you should be doing with your land and restrict the way that you use it. So, so now
2: you're back in our good graces. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> I just want to make one quick um, comment in relation to the difficulty, the nexus between housing and getting to work. That you know the difficulties of that. Um, some of you may have seen today in the headlines that the SEC is charging. Um, Elon Musk was with uh, some fraud. securities fraud. And um, it's just it's interesting to me that because, you know, if you buy a Tesla, um the federal government was giving you seventy five hundred dollars, which went, you know, effectively into into his pocket. And yet, you know, the the that could buy not that I'm saying it necessarily that we should be buying poor people cars. But it just it, you know, it just um, makes the point that you know, it the, the incentives and the payment systems are completely skewed.
0: Where do I get this $7,500 for my... <laughs> go
2: buy a Tesla you, S oh, something okay. something. <laughs> yeah.
1: All right. Ryan? But this is something that I found looking across all of these different areas where you had um, the the tastes and preferences of upper middle class and wealthier households um, mm-hmm. being put into the regulatory system. So the best example of this, I think, is, is in childcare, actually, where... Um, Childcare is increasingly being overtaken by what I'd call the educationalists who see uh, children being cared for as a means of providing uh, preschool education, essentially. Um, and that's led to a huge demand not just for pretty strict staff child uh, ratio regulation, the number of kids that any carer can care for, but also um, qualification requirements for people. Uh, who care for them. So the DC government, for example, wants to make it so that if you care for a child in one of these infant centres, you have to have an associate's degree in children's education. Now clearly that's like an occupational licence. It restricts the supply of the potential number of child carers um, that there are. And there's an incredibly um, powerful economic paper on this that shows that the effect of that regulation, the effect of the staff child regulation, Um, almost all the constraint in supply and the fall in the number of infant centres comes in poorer areas. In richer areas, people say, it's great, we've got a new high-quality childcare centre around the corner, and demand actually goes up as a result because you get a quality assurance effect. In poorer areas, you get the um, uh, fewer centres operate because it's not cost-effective and people in the local area don't have the money to pay for the more expensive service. And then as a result, people end up um, either caring for kids themselves or putting, uh, their kids into, into other forms of, of daycare, home daycare, uh, for example. And we have no idea what the, the quality of that other care is like. Yeah. Um, it's, it's a make or break situation for, for low income parents who yeah, want to. So work. what, so what you do is you focus on one part of the market and say, okay, we're going to try and improve the quality of this part of the market. But a consequence of driving the price up for the formal infant centers. Is to push people into other forms of care, which we have no idea really what the uh, the quality implications are. I think it's much better as a principle and a libertarian principle to allow parents to decide what is best for their children and to choose the appropriate balance between uh, price and quality, a price quality bundle that they see appropriate for the needs of their own child. Um, And if that means putting it in a putting putting it putting in a child in a in a (laughs) a formal care centre where there are fewer staff uh, per number of children, but it gives the family a better opportunity to move into a decent uh, job opportunity, then I think that's something, a decision that should be left with the family.
0: Vanessa Brown Calder is a policy analyst at the Cato Institute. Ryan Bourne holds the R. Evan Scharf Chair in the Public Understanding of Economics at Cato. And Diane Katz is a Regulatory Policy Fellow at the Heritage Foundation. You can rate the Cato Daily Podcast at iTunes, Google Podcasts, and anywhere else you get your podcasts. And you can follow us on Twitter at Cato Podcast.